0: Hey everyone, Coach Investor, back to another video for today. So in today's video, we have Brian Faroldi here with us. We're going to talk about everything, investing, his journey, why he started to invest, his mistakes, what they've learned from them, his checklist, how that has evolved over time and much more. You might know Brian from The Motley Fool or from his YouTube channel, or maybe you're following him on Twitter. So if you're interested in that, sit back and relax, maybe hit that thumbs up button. And if you want, you can always subscribe to this channel, I really want to try and reach 20,000 subscribers by the end of the year, so it would really, really mean a lot if you hit that subscribe button. It's free and you can always unsubscribe later. Stop wasting your time. Enjoy. So the way I I like to to do these types of interviews, basically at first a little introduction, why you started investing, who you are, and then we'll jump into some more more details. So uh, the first question I want to ask was, um, what was the motivation behind uh, investing? Was there a specific moment and who influenced you to start investing in the way, the specific style of investing especially?
1: Sure. Uh, so thank you for, thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Love connecting thank with you sure. other YouTubers. Um, so I first learned about investing uh, in about 2004. Uh, at the time I had just graduated from college and as a gift, my, my father gave me a copy of a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad uh, by Robert Kiyosaki. And that was kind of like the peak of the popularity of that book. And I devoured it, just devoured it and was instantaneously on board. Um, I don't agree with everything in that, that that book uh, says and does. However, <laughs> it was the very first time in my life that I had been told about the concepts of everyone's in business for themselves, how the rich think about money uh, differently. You can build wealth in one generation by investing, the benefits of owning a business, et cetera. And that concept just immediately resonated uh, with my personality. Uh, From there, I just started consuming every piece of financial content that I could get my hands on, which again, at the time was Almost all books. So I I devoured dozens, if not hundreds, of books about real estate investing, stock market investing, personal finance, uh, etc. Uh, included in that um, in that binge that I am still on, essentially, um, was uh, Introduction to the Motley Fool. Uh, from there, I got to know. Uh, a little bit more about the about long-term buy and hold investing, uh, the benefits of investing in the stock market. Uh, and I started to put some money uh, into uh, the, the stock market. When I first started, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to read an income statement or a balance sheet or what a stock really was or why it moved up and down. All of that was completely foreign. Uh, to me. So because of that, I made tons, tons of mistakes uh, in the beginning, basically all the rookie mistakes uh, that you can make. However, over time, uh, thanks to continuing to educate myself, learning from my own mistakes, uh, my style has gradually evolved And if I was to summarize my style today, it would be find great companies, uh, buy those companies, and then hold them until they are no longer great. So I am very much a long-term buy and hold investor that is aiming to buy companies that allow me to beat the market over long periods of time.
0: Okay, great answer. And I want to build up the second question because you have a specific checklist, right? that you go through before each and every investment. How how did you start using this checklist and has it evolved over over the years? And will it evolve in the coming years as well?
1: Yeah, it's evolved evolved, uh, greatly over the last, uh, since I created it, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve uh, over time. So once you get into investing in the stock market, you quickly, if, if, you, if you poke around, you quickly have more ideas for investments uh, than you do capital uh, to invest in them. And I think a lot of people are in that uh, position today. It's so easy, especially thanks to things like uh, Fintwit, uh, to find interesting companies to invest in. Prior to having any sort of system in place, I was trying to pick the companies that I wanted to invest in based on a huge range of factors and all those factors I was keeping in my head. I'd be like, well, well, this company uh, has a great CEO, high inside ownership, is growing fast, wide moat. But this other company growing even faster, science of optionality, and is cheap. And this other company has a big dividend uh, and a high gross margin, uh, but a very high customer acquisition costs, uh, et cetera. So I had all these things that I was looking for in the stocks that I was trying to, to pick, and I was trying to keep all that information in my head. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, I finally got wise enough to say, maybe I should write this down. So I started to write it down, and the very first thing that I uh, uh, did in in developing of the checklist was I made a list of all the business attributes that I find uh, exciting about owning a Mm -hmm. company. So I want to see a strong balance sheet. I'm attracted to a high gross margin. I like positive free cash flow, positive net income. I like a wide and enduring moat, uh, et cetera. So I made this big list of all the attributes that I find appealing in a potential investment. At the same time, I made another list. That's all the things I don't want to see in a, in a, in a company. Uh, so I don't like it when the dilution rate is really high. I don't like it when a company's success depends on an outside market price for the company mm-hmm. to be successful. So an example there is, I don't like investing in oil companies uh, because they're dependent on the price of oil uh, yeah. being high for them to, to make money. I don't like accounting irregularities. I don't like CEO turnover. I don't like growth by acquisition, et cetera. So I made these two lists, the things that I like, the things that I don't like, and then over time, I, it evolved into a checklist scoring system. Uh, so I assign 100 points to the attributes that I like and negative 44 points to the things that I don't. And now mm-hmm. I can take any company that I've, I've heard of or not and run it through my checklist top to bottom. And at the end of that process, it produces a quality score. And that quality score is essentially an indication of how aligned that particular stock is to what, 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 the, what I want to invest in uh, myself. So once I have this list of quality scores for now hundreds of businesses, I focus my time and energy on the companies that score the best, and I ignore the companies that score the worst.
0: Okay. Fair enough. And has there ever been a time where you went to the to, to the checklist, you got a high score, but eventually it turned out to be a very bad investment, or the other side of the, the coin went through the checklist, bad score, went on to be a success?
1: Of course. Uh, of course. No no system will ever predict what's gonna happen to a stock in the future. The future is Always un- unknowable. And even the best investing systems uh, ever devised are only accurate, say 50 or 60% uh, of the time. I know that going into this uh, process. In fact, I'm a firm believer that the, the good stock picking doesn't maximize your return. Uh, Good stock picking uh, maximizes your chances of earning market beating returns and minimizes your chances of earning a below market uh, return. So that's what my system is designed to do. And there are companies that score terribly on my checklist, and then go on to be phenomenal investments. And there are, of course, stocks that score very well on my checklist that then go on to be terrible uh, investments. So I know that uh, I know that going in. Uh, however, I, I still am a big believer in going through this process because, again, I think it increases my chance of setting my portfolio up for long-term success and decreases my chance of buying bad companies. But nothing is foolproof.
0: For sure, 100%. And you touched a little bit o- about uh, the monthly Fool. I started contributing to the monthly Fool at the start of, of this year. Um, I had a question from one of the, the subscribers. I'm going to read it. was waiting for it for the last question. But since we touched on that, um, he asked about since the monthly Fool recommends a lot of stocks, right? They have a full baskets of buy recommendations, whether it's options or, or just specific stocks as well. What's the optimal way to diversify? Uh, is there a way to choose a specific number of stocks to own? Since the monthly Fool recommends so many of them, should they buy them all or just the top 25 or 60 or, or whatnot? And then for the next part, um, how do they build up their, their position? So that's a question that's probably very, very popular. How, some, how does someone build up their position over time? Does it go all in at first, wait for dips, dollar cross average, Etc. So it's a two-part, maybe even three-part question.
1: Yeah, that's one of the downsides to being, uh, to being, to working for the Motley Fool is you get access to all of the services and they make, there are, hundreds of stocks uh, in their various portfolios that they recommend, and it can, be, it can be very challenging to figure out which ones you actually are interested in and which ones you're not. Uh, that's, a, that's a big reason, again, why I recommend going through a, a checklist uh, uh, process. So I would I, I recommend if you are facing that dilemma where you just have all these recommendations and you don't know what to do, write down what kind of investor uh, you are and what, what are you after are you after the highest risk, highest growth stocks that you can find? Uh, if so, uh, you're going to really want to see extreme revenue growth and extreme optionality and probably small cap stocks that have the highest chance of multiplying your portfolio. Uh, are you after uh, steady growth and you just want a steady income? Well, d- obviously you're going to prioritize dividends and dividend growth and stability of the company's uh, moat. Uh, above all. So if you are facing that problem where you just have so many recommendations, the first thing to do is define what type of investor you are, what companies best match your investing style. And then when you get a recommendation, match it up to your investing style and see, does this uh, fit for me? There's there's nothing wrong with taking a pass on the vast majority of recommendations that come your way if those stocks don't appeal to your investing style. You don't have to buy a company just because uh, it's recommended. Now on the building of the portfolio side, that's really going to depend on the individual and their personal circumstances. If they have, let's just say they have $100,000 in cash and they have zero investments and they're like, I want to get started uh, today, there's several different ways that you can do. I can tell you that the math the math says invest it all right away. Just buy, just buy 25 companies' uh, recommendations right away and just let that ride. That's what the math says to do. And the reason the math works out is because the market goes up more often than it doesn't go up. And uh, getting your money in the market uh, immediately is is the right thing to do. Uh, Emotionally, that can be really hard Mm -hmm. to do. Because what if you're buying at a local uh, top and you plow it all in at once and then your entire portfolio drops 20% because there's a downturn uh, around the corner? Can you emotionally handle that? For a lot of people, the answer is know they, they would feel like complete rubes uh, by, by investing uh, all at once. So I, uh, if, if you're in that scenario, I would start by uh, writing down a schedule uh, for yourself. So again, let's say you had $100,000 uh, to invest. Uh, make it so over the next year, you commit to investing that $100,000. So that would be roughly $8,000 uh, a month and just set up a schedule. Uh, for, for yourself, where on the first of the month, I'm going to buy uh, whatever top 10 stocks are recommended by The Motley Fool or in the broad-based uh, index fund or in an ETF or whatever you choose to uh, invest in. And if you want to go one step further, you can even say, here's my schedule, but if the market declines 5% or 10% uh, during whatever period, I'm going to accelerate my schedule. So let's say you invest on January 1st, and the market falls 10% by January 15th. Well, you can pull forward your February investment. That way, you're taking advantage of the the decline. And if the market stays flat or goes up, just stick to your schedule. So there's lots of ways that you can approach it. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just about whatever works best for you. But either way, uh, as you can probably tell, the theme here is write things down make decisions when you're in a calm, rational state and then execute those decisions uh, that, that, you, and then that and then work to execute whatever decisions you made.
0: Very good answer. Yeah, I've, I've read a couple of years ago, if, if you plan on making a trade or investment while on your phone, you should probably not, not do it because when you're on your phone, you're probably maybe in the street, on the bus, in the car, whatever. It's probably not the right time to, to do anything with, with your investment. Um, and with regards to the, to the timing, I, I agree completely. I, I recently started a second little portfolio where every month I put a fixed amount in four positions, regardless of price. So, like first of the month, money goes in. Don't care if it's down, if it's up twenty percent, it goes in. And then in the long term, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Because I think the, the crucial thing here, and for most new investors who may be joined in 2020. Um, the crucial thing is to know that long-term investing beats whatever you think you can make in, in the short term. In the short term, we've seen it this year. This year has been a year full of roller coasters. Um, most growth stocks are even down year to date. Like even the biggest ones out there are down year to date. Um, long-term vision beats beats everything. Like we said, even if you put everything right now in a specific stock, unless it's a, I don't know a company that well I don't know has fraudulent activities or whatever there's a huge chance that 10, 20 years from now, your investment will be, will be up significantly. No.
1: Yeah, that, the, the last two years have been ex- uh, very challenging for, for, for new investors. A lot of people started investing in March, April, May of 2020. And if all you had to do in March, April, May of 2020 was buy a stock and you immediately made money, it immediately went up and a whole bunch of people got their first experience with investing in that kind of environment where the only thing they knew is buy any high growth company and you immediately earned a 20 50 100 return on your capital what we've seen in 2021 is the exact opposite of that whereas buy any high growth company and you immediately lose uh 10 20 30 50 percent of of your capital uh that that's really challenging to do so because people are judging their uh their how the market works based on their narrow uh, window of experience. And it's really difficult. Uh, One thing that investors really need to do is train themselves to zoom out and look at the the big picture. One of my favorite investing quotes ever is from Benjamin Graham. He says, in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, the market is a, a weighing machine. But so many people get confused about the market because they're only looking at the price of a stock and they're using that to judge whether they made a good investing decision or a bad investing decision. The only thing that price is showing you in the short term is how popular that stock is uh, over, over a short period uh, of time. Uh, the earnings, the changes in earnings don't really matter that much uh, in the short term. However, they're all that matter uh, in, in, in the long term. So all investors need to zoom out and train themselves to think about stocks as long-term assets that should be judged over a multi-year period, not a multi-day period. But that's very, very hard to do.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. I started in 2016. So although it's not that long, it's five years, I've been through some weird stages from the of the market. I've been through elections, I've been through trade wars, pandemics. Now we're going to inflation, interest rates, that type of environment. So. You do see everything that happens, but eventually, whatever I bought in 2016, even after all those, let's say, short-term disasters, I'm still up significantly. So to everyone that does start to invest, maybe in 2022, maybe that's their newest resolution, think long-term. In the short term, yes, you might be down like this year, I'm down a couple of positions as well because I bought in January, I've been buying average down. I don't really care because the business, I take Roku, for example, Roku is down, I think 40, maybe even 50% this year since it's all time highs. But the business has been doing significantly better each and every quarter. Now, if you are a shorter investor, then yes, maybe Roku is not not for you. If you're investing for five, 10 years period, then maybe Roku is is the one for you. And you should embrace that the stock price is down because when you buy a share, a company, you're not buying a ticker symbol, you're buying a share of a business of a company. And that's I think something that really needs to maybe change from the mindset from the people that started back in 2020. Because you could have bought whatever and it went up.
1: Yeah that's 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 it's an excellent point and with Roku in, in particular, uh Roku is a is a fascinating company to to study that company is really doing extremely well if you just look at the company's uh, business results. And in 2020, Roku stock was on fire and could do no wrong. And in 2021, it's the business is still performing extremely well, and the stock has just gone. Uh, straight down. And those extreme swings in uh, sentiment seem to have no correlation at all to the underlying uh, business uh, results. But if you're a believer uh, in the switch from linear TV to streaming, uh, which I think you you should be, it's hard not to believe that Roku will be worth much more three, five, and 10 years from now than it is today.
0: 100%. And as, we, as we're uh, doing this interview, the news came out that they reached an agreement with Google that youtube and youtube tv will stay on on roku so i think the stock will probably be up today and a lot of people would might change their mind suddenly uh, about about the company um now i want to switch for a second a bit out of the the investment uh, uh, world how do you utilize your time outside of the investing world like what do you do to take your mind off the stocks and investing during well, uh... bad periods
1: uh, I love thinking about in- investing. I love thinking about uh, money. It's one of the uh, areas of life that I am just personally endlessly fascinated uh, by, and it also just so happens to be my profession uh, because I'm a uh, contractor for the Motley Fool. So a lot mm-hmm. of my a lot of my time is uh, spent. Uh, thinking about uh, investing in the stock market and and money. Uh, however, outside of that, I do lots of uh, activities to, that have nothing to do uh, with the market. I'm a huge fan of going on uh, walks and exercising. I try and do that uh, every single uh, day. I love hanging out with, uh, with friends. Uh, I have uh, kids that are in um, Uh, elementary school and middle school. So we have a ton of our our lives revolve around their uh, sporting Activity, so I would say those are the things that I spend uh, the majority of my non uh, non market time focused on. However, if you're if you're an investor, uh, it, I have I have a really hard time turning that part of my brain off. So even if I'm watching a sports game or or driving in the car, my mind is regularly churning on on that kind of thing. So perhaps I'm not the right person to ask that question to because I suck at it.
0: Okay, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Um, now a quick question with regards to the monthly for when. When did you actually start with The Motley Fool and how did you evolve over the year there? Like, how did you evolve? Maybe how the company evolved as well?
1: I started, uh, so I was a, uh, as I said previously, I read The Motley Fool's book in like 2007. Mm-hmm. I found fool.com in like two, uh, 2007, same, same same time period, maybe maybe even a few years uh, earlier. Um, and I didn't understand what The Motley Fool was at first. I was like, how am I reading these free articles and they're doing company analysis and they're giving away information. I was like, I don't, is this a charity? Like how I don't understand what this company, uh, is, um, only later did I, that I figured that out and I became a paying subscriber to the Motley Fool, I think for the first time in 2008. Um, and from there, I just became immersed in, uh, in, I just am a huge fan of stocks and stock investing. I just became immersed in their discussion boards. They have these thriving discussion uh, community where hundreds or thousands of investors from all around the world uh, post information about uh, companies, share uh, lessons, and it is just a treasure trove of information uh, for, for people to uh, to look through. And from there, because I was posting so much, an active member of the Motley Fool uh, community, I'd, I'd gone down and I'd visited the headquarters. I'd gotten to know some of the advisors uh, personally. Uh, in 2015, uh, I was offered the opportunity to become a, uh, a writer for them, and I, uh, I jumped at I jumped at that. And uh, since then, it's evolved. I now do live streaming for them. I do podcasts uh, uh, for them, and a lot more of my time with them is spent on audio and video than it is necessarily on on writing. But that's kind of how my uh, my uh, career with them has evolved over the couple of years.
0: Okay. Do you see them more going into video and, and audio over time? Because I'm only, well, not only, but mostly video and then a couple of uh, articles that attach to the video.
1: Yeah, I, I would say they're going to do all of the above. Uh, video and uh, YouTube is, is where a lot of people are consuming financial content these days. So they are, have a big mm-hmm. push in their audio and podcasting, I think will remain relevant for a long period of time. But there's also lots of people that like to read, uh, still read, read articles, read from the premium newsletters. So what I think they're going to do in the future looks a lot like what they're doing today, just with more emphasis on audio uh, and video.
0: All right, fair enough. Um, I want to ask a question about financial uh, wellness, because your pin tweet on on Twitter talks about, about that. And why and how it became your, your main mission to spread financial uh,
1: wellness? I'm a big believer in mission statements, both at the company level and at the career level, and at the personal uh, level. To me, a well-crafted mission statement is like a North Star that you can use to orientate yourself and to make uh, decisions around. Most people that interact with me online get to know me because of uh, the stock market. And that might cause people to think that I'm just a stock market uh, junkie who spreads content about that nonstop. And that is a lot of what I do. It does consume a lot of the content that I put out there. Uh, However, I'm a firm believer that people should not invest in individual stocks or not invest in the stock market until their personal finances are taken taken care of. So I don't think you should have money in the market if you have credit card debt or a car loan. Um, I I don't think you should learn about investing if you are, uh, if your career, if you haven't developed your career or you don't have a a network for yourself or you don't have an emergency fund. To me, those things are are more important than just knowing what stock uh, to buy Uh, in part because uh, you're the way that you act in your personal life uh, financially affects the way that you're going to invest. Uh, in fact, it's so much harder. Uh, if you invest a down, you, you can be sure that you're going to invest through a downturn uh, at some point. And it's so much harder to go through a downturn if you simultaneously have a pile of debt and your job is is threatened. You can't think rationally about making good investing decisions if your personal finances uh, are, are, are in tatters. Uh, because of that, my mission is to spread financial wellness. So not only do I try and educate people about how to invest better. I also try and regularly put out content that says things like, "Pay off your debt, build an emergency fund, make sure that you have proper insurance uh, in place, and really get your uh, get your savings rate high, develop multiple income streams." Uh, Those things are hugely impactful to the quality of somebody's life. Much more so, much more so than just knowing what stock to buy next. One
0: hundred percent, one hundred percent agreed. Because if you do not do this, then when you are invested in the stock market and there is a market correction, a market crash, then you're more maybe inclined to like, okay, I'll just I'll take my money from the investment and just use it for for my for my day to day life or whatever because I'm I'm in need of that money. I have to pay off debt, I have to pay off a mortgage or whatever. So now you t- you touch on on some very great and good points, obviously. Um,
1: and oh, yeah. by the way, when when are when are you most likely to need to tap your investments uh, during a downturn? Right, that's the most likely time that you're going to be uh, laid off from your job and have some kind of other income uh, shock going on. So, if that's the case, and your investments are your emergency fund, you're the odds of you selling those investments at a terrible time are really really high. So, if you have rock solid Uh, if your personal finances are rock solid it allows you to weather a downturn and to not make bad investing decisions at the worst possible time
0: 100 percent like we used to say this about cryptocurrencies or even going to vegas like don't gamble or don't invest money you cannot afford to lose but of course same thing can be said in investing like don't invest money that you will need probably in the x amount of years uh to come so it's it's a good good point and I have, like, if you can go back, back in time, and tell your younger self something about investing, maybe life experience related. What what would that be? And that's part one. Part two is, during market downturns, if you did something wrong, and you can go back, what what would that be?
1: Well, if I could cheat and say buy Bitcoin in two thousand and ten, I guess I would. Right? That would be the only investing decision you ever had to make, uh, sure. in in your life. But, um. This is something I think about fairly regularly, and I, I have a hard time answering this question because if I didn't make the mistakes that I made when I first starting out, I wouldn't be the investor that I am today. I mean, many of the, the the most painful financial lessons that I've ever learned, I really respect the the lessons learned from them because I went through them and. I'm the type of person that uh, some invest some, some lessons that I've learned I couldn't have learned any any other way. I mean, reading about what to do and actually making that mistake and feeling the pain of your decision are, are two different things. So of course I made a bad investing decisions. I bought I bought uh, penny stocks. Uh, I used uh, options on a uh, sure thing uh, that cost me uh, thousands upon thousands. Of of dollars, I sold stocks that then went on to fifty x from where I sold them. I bought stocks that went down fifty percent plus uh, from from where I bought them. So I made tons of an, of investing mistakes. But if I was to whisper to myself uh, ten plus years ago, I would say, "Keep doing what you're doing. You're going to get better uh, over time, and you're going to find your investing uh, the way that you you're your investing uh, style." So. That would be my advice to myself. Plus, I would probably mix in something about don't worry about money as much as you are currently doing. Um, I was so hyper-focused on saving and accumulating that I did make some decisions in my personal life that um, I was trying to accumulate uh, so much capital uh, early on that I probably could have loosened the reins on that and done more nicer vacations or things like that prior to having uh, kids. So that would be uh, things that I would probably tell myself. All right,
0: because I saw I saw your tweet I think today or maybe yesterday with regards to stop loss and uh, Netflix, that if you had a stop loss you would have sold Netflix at nine dollars I think. Yep. So there you have it, prime prime example. Um, you talked about about Bitcoin, so I would love to know your your uh, your thoughts on the whole cryptocurrency world and maybe maybe even NFTs since that's been the talk of the year.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm very interested, and I would say uh, bullish on all of the above. When I first learned about Bitcoin, I kind of I, I immediately dismissed it. This is dumb. This is stupid. This is magical uh, internet money. Uh, over the last couple of years, the more I've learned about it, um, the more kind of soft my tone has become on it, and I would say more within the last year or so, uh, the question that really made me flip my mind from being bearish on Bitcoin to, to bullish on cryptocurrencies in general was just this. Should there be a global currency of the internet? Should that be a thing? I think the answer is yes. I, I think that having a, a, a global currency of the internet makes sense. Uh, right now, the leading contender for that spot is Bitcoin. Um, so I, I could very much see... It being a good financial decision to put one, two, five percent of your capital into cryptocurrencies, assuming. You did everything I said before, which is that your personal finances are rock solid. So I have bought a tiny little bit of Bitcoin and Ethereum myself. I could see myself continuing to add to those positions uh, over time, but always keeping my exposure to a minimal point so that if I was wrong about them and they crashed 90 plus percent, um, that I would be fine uh, financially. And I would learn a lesson from that. NFTs were have been so far the one blockchain application that i immediately got like i just immediately was like that makes sense that that makes sense to me uh having digital ownership of of, of assets both in the uh non-physical and the physical world that are controlled in a centralized leisure that that makes sense to me. Like, uh, so I am I am very interested in NFTs. I haven't made or bought any as, as of yet, but that is an application of blockchain that I think has a lot of merit.
0: So do you see the way NFTs are used today as anything significant or just the underlying technology? Because if we think of like those crypto arts today, 90 plus percent of those are let's say, not very useful in our day-to-day life. But the underlying technology of it, the NFTs, let's say you buy a pair of, of Gucci bags or, or whatever, You using NFT technology, you could know directly if it's a real bag or, or a fake one. So in the future, how do you see this evolve? Because right now, just with CryptoPunks or, or, or those images, it's not very useful for our day-to-day lives. And maybe that's why, I don't know, 90% of the world doesn't really look at it as something very, very serious.
1: Well, that's how a lot of technologies evolve. At first, they seem silly, and then they seem like rich people toys, and then use cases gradually grow from there. And people over time grow more and more comfortable with them and more and more uh, accustomed to them. I could very much see NFTs going along uh, the, same, the same route. But uh, to your point, why, I mean, why does the Mona Lisa have value? Does it does it have value? It's just art. It's just strokes on a on a on a canvas. Like that's that's all it is at it's, its its basic level. But I think collectively we agree that that painting is worth hundreds of millions uh, of dollars. It's the same concept just applied to the the digital uh, world. And you could very much see uh, artists going that uh, that same route. Uh, for uh, for example, I remember twenty plus years ago when Coldplay was first first coming uh, uh, on the market. They had this hit song called Yellow. And a friend of mine uh, was really into to music and just had a knack for being on the forefront of, of music. And he basically said, watch out for this company, uh, this band. This band is going to be huge one day. And I was like, I don't really like this song that much. It doesn't seem all that uh, all that good. But he was dead right. Cold, Coldplay went on to become, for a while, one of the biggest bands in, in the world. Imagine if 20 years ago... NFTs existed, and you could buy an NFT or buy something on that Coldplay owned and created. And you, as the fan... Could benefit financially from the success of that company or from the popularity of that company uh, arising. That would be that's incredibly I- exciting for uh, for for the fans. So I think if NFTs go that route, which it looks like they're they're going to, it could be a bonanza not only for uh, for creators out there, but for the fans uh, to to benefit from the pr- prosperity of of whatever they're creating. So I think that that is a is a use case that just makes a lot of sense to me.
0: No, I agree. I don't know how many times I thought to myself, if I only, if I could have invested in a certain YouTube channel, that would have been, that would have been a a very, very good investment. Um, And it helps both sides because obviously there needs to be rules. There needs to be like a full on white paper that says, look, if you're investing, if you're buying an NFT you're an NFT holder, eventually if it becomes a success, you'll benefit from that because just giving money and then disappears out of thin air, um, that's not the, the way to go. Um, but with Bitcoin being the currency of the internet, I know Jack Dorsey wants to wants to do it. But if you look at the other cryptocurrencies out there, there are some that are just much better than Bitcoin. Just Bitcoin is the biggest one, so it becomes obviously the, it takes the number one spot. But if if you want to have a currency that is fast and cheap, right now Bitcoin does not tick those boxes. So. How do you see this evolve in the future? Are we going to stay with Bitcoin just being number one, so we have to use Bitcoin or do you see any other changes that's going to happen in that field?
1: I have no idea how that's going to shake out. I mean, I have only personally looked at Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, and I've been hearing much about Learned a little bit more about like Solana, but mm-hmm. I know that there are dozens of cryptocurrencies, hundreds of cryptocurrencies out there, and I don't claim to say, have any foresight into which one is going to be the one that uh, that that rules them rules them all. I think that it makes sense uh, that Bitcoin. B- b- there's no doubt that Bitcoin is the is the is the leader uh, in in that category now, but will it always be? I I don't I don't know how that was going to uh, shake out. Um, so that would be something that I look forward to learning and, and watching as the market evolves over time.
0: All right. Um, I'll do a couple of like back and forth questions. One, if you did not have to worry about money at all, how would you spend your, your
1: time? The exact same way I'm doing what I'm doing today. I would be highly focused on helping other people to do better with their, their money. And I would be very focused on my mission to spread financial wellness, which is how I spend my time now.
0: All right, very good question, very good answer. Um, then, if is there one private company that you would love to see go public?
1: Impossible Foods. I will be a day one buyer of Impossible Foods when it comes public, assuming the valuation isn't like five hundred billion mm-hmm. or something crazy like that. But I think the uh, I think the the plant based meat. Market is fascinating, and I think that Impossible Foods is heads and shoulders uh, above the other uh, companies that I've 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 looked at uh, and tasted uh, myself. Importantly, I don't know if Impossible Foods is going to be a great investment because I see endless uh, an endless uh, move to continuously lower their prices to make their products more and more and more affordable. Uh, however, uh, that is one company that I would love to be public. All right?
0: Is there one specific, like probably not one, but many um, specific reasons why you chose Impossible Foods over, like, say, Beyond or Tattoo Chef or probably others out there? Because I remember one of the subscribers actually wrote something about the plant-based industry that he wanted me to ask. So maybe a bit more um, thoughts on on this.
1: Yeah, I say that from using my own palate as a as a judging point. I've had Beyond Meat, I've had Impossible, I've had an, a, a number of the products. I've never had Tattooed Chef, um, but uh, t- to me, Impossible Foods is the Coca Cola of the industry. It's 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 the the top dog. Uh, in, uh, Beyond Meat is is kind of like the the Pepsi. It's like the mm-hmm. the distant number number two. Um, so, I I just think for myself, I I I personally prefer Impossible Foods, and that has. Even in my mind, a strong enough brand name and quality associated that I, as a consumer, would pay premium for Impossible Food stuff over the other offerings that are on on, on the market. Uh, but that that's my that's my analysis. Is it's the one that I like the most as a consumer? Okay,
0: no, fair enough. Uh, it's it's a, it's also a good way to to find a good investment. Uh, I think Peter Lynch said it as well when he invested in Dunkin' Donuts. He literally went into a Dunkin' and ask people if they like, if they like the food, say yes. themselves. So, so it's a perfect, perfect example of how to conduct maybe an uh, uh, investing research. Um, I will maybe end this by, by asking you, is there one investment that you wish you had done? Obviously not Bitcoin um, and one that you did not.
1: Well, I've, uh, I would say the one that I've missed out on the most because I discounted its competitive advantage and business model uh, myself uh, would be NVIDIA. NVIDIA was a company that's been recommended to me for many, many years. And I always kind of said, eh, computer heart, chips are are too hard and the company's growth has been so strong for so long. I can't imagine that the the demand for this company's chips is going to grow endlessly. So I have not bought NVIDIA. And if I ever once flip that decision, uh, that would be a, that, that company has smashed the market beyond anything that I could have imagined. Uh, so I would say that NVIDIA would be the one company that, um, that quote unquote, got away. Okay.
0: Yeah. I, I can say almost the same thing, but I had NVIDIA and then it reached a point where I'm like, hmm, how much higher, how much bigger can it? Can it, can it go? Can it become obviously much, much bigger and much, much higher? Um, so, yeah, touch that's a great way to end to say that, look, a business can grow, a stock can go higher. But if it's a good one, it will probably go even even higher uh, over time. Um, and yeah, that's a good way to end. If you, if you want to end, if you want to add something, um, feel free to do so.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the crazy thing about Nvidia is it's currently approaching eight and eight hundred billion dollar uh, market cap, and that does uh, to me. It's a fantastic company all around. Uh, but at that price, I I have a hard time seeing the uh, extreme upside from today's valuation than I would from looking at a company that's say ten billion dollars or less. Uh, so it's not that Nvidia can't be a great investment uh, moving forward. It's just that. Whenever I'm making capital allocations decisions, I'm trying to decide between the combination of business quality, valuation, and potential. And uh, that company just wouldn't meet, meet that uh, criteria across the board for me. But I think NVIDIA is a fabulous company.
0: Agreed, agreed. Um, so I wanna thank you for, uh, for your time, for coming on. Um, for those that are watching, you can find Brian on YouTube, Brian Ferraldi, on Twitter, on Spotify, industry focus. Um, do you have other podcasts, maybe? Oh um, that uh, that's
1: you're... the that's the best place to to uh, connect with me is on uh, is on YouTube and Twitter.
0: All right, then, great. Um, so again, thank you very much for taking the time. Um, really, really appreciate it. Big fan, big fan for for many years, and uh, happy to be part of the food as well. So, awesome!
1: That's... Great, great to have you on board. Uh, awesome, awesome to meet you uh, in person, Neil.
0: Nice to meet you too. Have a good Have a good week.